Yes, what's going on everybody? Welcome back to another brand new Rugby Muscle Podcast. I'm your host as always, TJ. Today we're joined once again by Dr. Scott. Well, I mean, I was joined last week by him and we've just extended this episode because we went so in-depth and we went, you know, around the place to really give context as to, like, it's not just a case of do this amount of reps or do this amount of sets. And in fact, (laughs) I jokingly complain to Dr. Scott that that's what we expected from him but it's not it's not the case that's not how muscle grows or that's not how the human body works or the human uh, mind works as well as we get into Um, really lots of detailed information for this second part so sit back enjoy and listen to the wise words and wisdom of Dr. Scott Stevenson this is something that I try and preach to my guys well in my question I asked you I use the word functional because they say, you know, oh, it's type one. That's not very functional. And I just hate that word because whatever adaptation you're making is like, by definition, it's functional. It's what like you're, you know, it's what the, what you're trying to achieve or what your training is producing. It's just the effect of that representing itself in the muscle. You know, what's interesting. Uh, I'm going to just play the kind of the devil's advocate. I can't speak for this in this entire school of thought, but, Jeremy Lenicky, for instance, is someone who's done a lot of this blood flow restriction here more more recently, mm-hmm. and um, and he and his lab and his his uh, the people that have worked with him have put forth the premise that the adaptation we see in muscle in terms of growth to the resistance exercise stimulus is not really um, all that important. Like it doesn't like maybe trying to make a, a mountain out of a molehill to some degree there. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough. And, and like one key piece of that argument is at least if you look acutely, um, when people first start to train, you might see in a few months, you can see like a 60, a hundred percent. If you're talking about older folks who maybe have some, some detraining and years of sedentary, you can increase muscle well over a hundred percent muscle strength, well over a hundred percent in mm-hmm. a few months. But you don't like if you see like a ten percent increase in muscle size, that's awesome. It's amazing. That's that's really like noticeable. So the increases in muscle strength, just looking at like pure like one rep max strength, far outweigh the increases in muscle size. So that that there's a school of thought now that's it's kind of interesting way to look at it. Keep at least at least frame it all in my mind, is that the muscle hypertrophy. Um, isn't really the main thing that contributes to what you see performance wise um, necessarily, at least in the short term. Now there's an interesting, um, there's an interesting study with rugby players actually that found that the, when they looked at, I think it was squat strength over the course of like a year of training that the correlation trying to think is, I think the about 60% of the variability or the variance in statistical speak, um, an increase in fat-free mass. I think they just did like a basic, you know, body fat, fat-free mass, fat and fat-free mass body composition assessment was explainable by increases in strength. Yeah. So guys who got stronger on the squat are the ones who gained the most muscle mass, essentially. That's what we're pointing to. Um, and there's a few studies that have documented that. So there's, there's obviously some relationship there. Um, between and that's you know that backs up the idea of progressive overload i mean we Um, have uh, weight classes in sports right because 
<laughs> there's strength limitations to someone that's smaller versus someone that's bigger. Right. Yeah, exactly. You can you look at, you know, the, there's a, there is a, a good relationship between just an untrained people. Um, it's called specific strength, how much force you can produce um, relative to the muscle cross-sectional area or the physiological cross-sectional area the muscle has. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely that, but the, the main thing is like looking at the adaptation. So does the increase in muscle size, is that reflective of the increase in, in muscle strength when you're doing strength training? It seems like yes. And, but it's not something that, that really gets, although it's the thing that we're, you know, we're thinking about as bodybuilders all the time where I'm thinking about. And, um, you know, someone who maybe is from a strength conditioning standpoint, if you're trying to use weight training, um, or strength training in a way that's going to increase muscle mass that then you can then apply on the rugby field or in whatever your sport of endeavor mm-hmm. is, then you want to get as much, you don't care. Like the, the best example I can think of is a bench press for football. And I talked with a buddy. I don't think you listened. I talked to a buddy other, other a couple of weeks ago, a friend from home. And he's got a couple sons who are wanting to go play football. They'll probably play football in college. And one of the things he wanted to kind of do is sort of focused on like trying to set the bench press record, I think for the, the position for the high school team for his son and I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. But like, you're trying to get him into college ball. And you know, if, if, if you're on your back pressing up in football, you've already lost. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a place over, yeah. you know, you've been knocked on your butt. So that doesn't really, there's not a lot of specificity to that sport. What you want is strength, pressing strength that you can then apply because you've been, you gain that strength and you gain the muscle mass that you, and the neural patterns for expressing that in a powerful fashion on the football field in a way that makes you in a better player. So mm-hmm. that's the thing is you want to like use progressive overload from a, we kind of turn this to rugby in a way that, you know, that you see those, the guys are getting stronger and assuming they're eating enough are getting the muscle mass that will help them, but you have to still be, uh, you know, playing rugby. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. You're talking my exact language. This is so it's it's funny because like my whole business is rugby strength and conditioning. And one I of the things I always say is like we, we, this still is has massive limitations in terms of what it can actually improve you as a rugby player. Like you can just watch a game and that might make you a better player just as much as going into the gym for an hour and doing whatever uh workout you're doing. And mm-hmm. it's like uh I actually have a video that will be going up the same week as this and it you know, I, I really try and make the point that all strength and conditioning in general, any work that you're doing in the gym is general in its nature of training. It's given you a potential to perform um, right. you know, a higher level, but it's not directly, you know, you, it's never going to directly affect it as much as actually just playing the game. And I, I, I think that's like, hypertrophy in general as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, general right of the general there, training. No, you're fine. Think about like, like the best basketball players. Like you have this, this story, like, you know, a lot of times ba- basketball, you know, this isn't always a story, but I'm, this is actually some, some of my friends who are really good basketball players too. The best basketball players, the kids who started playing when they're just kids, when they're young, yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather have a kid. And there are, there are some exceptions to this, but I'd rather have a kid who started playing basketball and he was three, you know, and he's hooping all day long, basketball, basketball. He's learning the skills of basketball, he's learning how to jump. Everything is specific to basketball mm-hmm. than a kid like you take him in the gym and you're having to do plyometrics and squats and, you know, all these basketball sort of associated things that aren't actual basketball. 
You know, there's yeah. just, there's specificity of training, which, which is overarching things. So the idea is like, if you see a, a football player or a basketball player or a rugby player, and you're like, you know what, when you're getting in a scrum, is that the right, right word? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So you're like, and, and like, and like, you just, you can just see from the film or you know this, you're just getting dominated. Your upper body is like people are taking the, taking the ball from you or what have mm-hmm. you. Um, then, you know, you, you need to work on muscle mass. There would probably help. But you don't want to go spend two years like, training like a powerlifter or a bodybuilder and not and don't doing any rugby because that muscle will probably won't do you any good. Yeah, you don't know how to use it yet. That's and it, you know it goes back into the point of what you were saying before. But all like muscle is. It, it, I think it's Eric Helms has been speaking about this quite a lot, and he put it really well recently. He said about how like hypertrophy is such a, it's not a goal that the body ever really wants to achieve. There's no real function for having more muscle mass other than the other physiological properties that it gives you, like the potential for more strength or more power or, and this is where this ties into the metabolism or the metabolite type training, sorry, like the metabolic stress stuff is if you do create more type one fibers, like people call it unfunctional, but it, it can actually do you wonders for your endurance. And like, especially if you're in a sport like rugby where you've, you know, you're mostly doing type two dominant stuff when you're then spending, you know, 95 plus percent of the game jogging slowly or walking, then you can easily flush out those, that blood, that fatigue blood using your type one fibers or whilst using your type one fibers. So you know, they all have their place. Yeah. And the thing too, like we can kind of get, get a little caught up with looking at fiber types mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to take research that suggests something about fiber types as, as it's connected to the resistance training and, and, and just presume that that's going to apply to a particular sporting situation. And I'll just toss this out as something I literally saw firsthand in doing muscle biopsies and doing the analysis back when I was in grad school. And, we had a, a study that we did with a number of good and elite level cyclists and we were doing fiber types and measuring oxidative capacity. So in basically endurance capacity, ability to, to, um, to produce ATP oxidatively, we're measuring, I think we measured both cytochrome oxidase and cytochrome C oxidase and succinate dehydrogenase. So just enzymes in the mitochondria. And those were actually higher in the type two A fibers. The type two fibers, one one of the one kind of the type two fibers, than in the type one fibers, in those individuals. So they had they had more oxidative endurance oriented enzymes in the fibers that were that were considered type two, in this case. So it's not a one to one correspondence. You look at type one versus type two, like it's a spectrum. Yeah. And the thing that can happen as well, which people don't necessarily. Um, no, it's just because you, you wouldn't even see it mentioned necessarily, but it's a limitation in, in tossing fibers into compartmentalizing them into bins is that you don't see really many fibers that only have one particular kind of myosin in them. So the way that t- fiber types, um, more recently you can do it various ways, but you can look at fiber types and call them fast or slow. You hear that? And people mm-hmm. say, well, the slows are type ones and the faster type twos. Like, yeah. well, well slow, you don't really see fast or slow muscles in humans. You can tease out individual fibers and, and look at their contractile properties. 
which generally relate to the myosin that are in them. But what you see in like rats, this is all dates back to like decades ago where you look at rats and you could find like the, like the soleus muscle in a rat is like 90% type one. It's very slow to contract. It's very u- uniform and homogeneous. And then you'll, and then the, the gastrocnemius is different than that. And there's differences between the two heads, of the gastroc, but you, so you see this very sort of um, specialization at least in those muscles, which are typically analyzed in roads, easy to get at. They're used in running, blah, blah, blah. You can see them activated at different speeds, et cetera, et cetera. But you look at humans and the fiber types are more heterogeneous. And if you actually pull out fibers um, individually and look at the myosin in them, you'll see that you've got different kinds of myosin all in one fiber. So you really have a continuum. But instead, we try to like just throw it into you know, a type one, a type two, and a type two X, a type two A and a type two X. But some people will go there. There's, it's funny if you look across some of the history, there's like type two C's, type one C's, type two AX, type two X, type two A. And <laughs> even amongst those, like even the, you take the type two AX, those have both type two A and type two X myosin. Two B actually isn't something you, you see in humans, although I think I saw it once in a, a study of masseter muscle, but that is a myosin that you don't see expressed in human muscle. You see it in rat, rat muscle. And we, we mistook the 2B in rodents to be the same 2B in humans, but actually um, we now know that it's not. So 2X is what we use to replace that. But you take those two A fibers, they're going to have probably some, many of them will have some 2A, 2X myosin in them. And some of those type ones, because we threw them in the type one, doesn't mean they're purely type ones. They might have some two A, and they even have some of them will have all three <laughs> blended together if they're in transition. So, yeah, that's so. so there's it's really um, you know we like to do that. Humans, you know, it makes sense to organize things. You know, put you know put all the uh, all the sharp pointy things in one one box and all the round things in another. But you know, all the sharp pointy things they could be screwdrivers, or they could be scissors, they could be knives. You know, they're not all the same. So, so that, that's, that can be a little bit of an oversimplification to try to look at type 2 or type 1 changes, just purely fiber type, because as I said, you could have type 2s that are more oxidative and endurance-oriented than the type 1s. And so you could have a situation where just looking at fiber type wouldn't give you a very clear picture of how muscle endurance has changed unless that's been measured specifically. And in that particular, probably in the training mode that was used, you'll like, here's a, here's a cool, here's a very cool study. I'll, I'll toss this one out. This is probably the most, the best one to illustrate this idea. So there's a study, um, uh, I was performed in Scandinavia and there's a really nice plot in a, um, in a review article by Digby sale. And, and he did a lot of this early stuff and, and sort of brought to light neural adaptations to strength training. And in this particular study, they trained using the squat. And there was like, I think, a 10% increase, something like that, in quad cross-sectional area. So the quad got bigger. And that's substantial. You would see that. If you're looking at a whole muscle cross-sectional area, you can see that. Like, you you put a before and after picture up, you're like, that's a bigger quad. That's Mm -hmm. definitely more impressive. So there was like, I think it was like 80% increase, something like that, in, in squat one rep max over the course of this multi-month strength training regime. But they didn't, they just did squats. Squats maybe not the best for quads, but that's what they did. So they also tested them on a before and after on a leg press, but they didn't train that way. 
And leg press, you know, is compound. Hips and knees are involved. Hams, glutes, quads, all. And there's like a 40% increase in strength there. So half the strength gains. But it wasn't the mode of training, so you didn't see the strength gains. And now they had them do like what you think is like the simplest non-skill related strength test you could do, a knee extension. Now with bigger quads, and they had zero increase in strength. Nothing. What? And you think like, well, how could that like the, the quad the muscle's bigger, but they didn't know how to use it. It wasn't it wasn't that muscle mass was not available to them because they did even in the most simple of movements, because they didn't train that way. They didn't train doing the extensions. Huh. So there's no strength gains, no performance gains. So that kind of illustrates exactly what I think you, you said you, you, um, you bring up all the time is that it, unless you're actually doing rugby, then you won't, won't have a great chance of applying any muscle mass that you might have gained in the gym and from training and eating and recovering to the rugby field. Right. And then that would go about making, or that would make then more sense to sort of go about training for more muscle mass in whichever is the most optimal way of training for more muscle mass and then using it on the field, as opposed to what we see sometimes a lot is that, you know, the quote unquote functional exercise is a little bit too much and it. You know, then at what point are you hamstringing yourself in terms of how much muscle you can grow no using those modalities? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, like imagine someone who just has like a really productive off season and they don't, they don't play, do any rugby. They just like dedicate themselves to gaining muscle mass and that puts them like 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine like if you haven't literally run, you know, like no running, no nothing. And then you go out and try to run, like just throw a 40 pound, you know, pack on your back. It's, it's but it's, it's distributed everywhere. You're going to, you're going to look and feel different because yeah. you haven't been running. Um, and that's what you always hear about, you know, bodybuilders pulling hamstrings, of course when they try to go run because they think, you know, they look like they look like they could run pretty fast. They got a lot of mus muscle. They look like, you know, they could be a decent sprinter, but they, but they can't because they haven't run for a decade. I would just, I would probably blow out, you know, at least one or two ligaments and tear three or four muscles if I tried to sprint, you know, cause I just haven't been doing that. So you have to take, there has to be some use. There has to be some, I, mean, I would love to see a study. Like for instance, if they replicated the squat study and just had them do, um, knee extensions periodically or sorry, or knee extensions or, or leg press periodically, just like once a month mm -hmm. um, and see what happened there. In fact, there's, there's been some interesting research because people are, people are being pretty ingenious now um, trying to like check on the validity of, of strength measurements. And uh, you can actually, uh, there's one study and I can't remember all the way, the way it was configured, but one study where they, they had a, a group that strength trained um, you know, three times a week, the standard sort of protocol, you know, which no one would balk at. And the other group simply just tested one rep max over the course of the training period. And they got like almost all of the strength gains <laughs> from right. just going in and doing one rep maxes. The other group wasn't doing one rep maxes. They were doing like, you know, 10 to 12 rep sets and they tested one rep max, but that's not how they trained. They didn't try to do one rep maxes, but the other group just did one rep maxes they didn't do any real training, like just going and doing, there was no increase in muscle size. They didn't evoke a muscular adaptation per se, or at least not one that was anywhere near what they found with the actual training regimes. They just practiced the one rep maxes and they got stronger. So take a rugby player 
you know, who, you know, not that you want to have to go out and like, you know, spend three or four hours, you know, playing rugby or do a you know bunch of matches um, to maintain that, but like having some semblance in your off season enough that doesn't dramatically interfere with your recovery and, and the, the idea that you're trying to put on size, have a caloric excess and get plenty of recovery so that you can apply the progressive overload in the gym. Um, that person, you know, just go and like, you know, do enough rugby um, so that you can, you can ha- know what it's like to play rugby over the course of that six months as opposed to doing nothing and then thinking like, okay, I just gained 30 pounds, you know, and you go and you, you feel like, like whose body is am I, am I using here? It doesn't feel like me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see that study, especially with the, the leg extension or the knee extension, where if they then, like they took that second group that trained a lot or not, not that I've got the two studies confused, but either way would work. Like, but if you would tend to do like a type of block periodization after that, so they got bigger and then they, uh, so the group that will do the second study, the one where they just tested their maxes. Mm-hmm. If that if that group that actually trained then switched back to the same program that the guys that were just doing the testing did at a bigger size, whether that that would then tease out the benefits of gaining that muscle size. I would assume so, but yeah. Well, like um, Jan Jan and Terry Todd, Terry Todd um. He, if you, he did announce like a lot of the world's strongest man competitions and his wife, Jan, Terry's now passed away. Jan's at university of Texas at Austin. Um, I got to know her a little bit. I, I, I got to teach the TA, some of her weight training classes and they had, a, um, a, they had their, their powerlifting team there at UT Austin had won the collegiate nationals like eight years in a row or something like that. When I said they were really successful, Jan was the first woman on record to squat 500 pounds. And she was on the Tonight Show way back when. Mm-hmm. So, but they used to train like they're So I got a couple. The powerlifters were the a couple of the young guys were um, like the, the the assistant to me. The they're the TAA, the assistant to the TA, so to speak. So they just <laughs> wanted to have fun. They're great guys. You know, we just shoot the bull and have fun, and and they just kind of made sure you know people were not going to hurt themselves. But I got to train a few times. I didn't train with the powerlifting team, but I got to train and get exposed to that energy and. And, uh, and I really love powerlifters, man. Cause these guys just like, they just, they just want to go and pick up heavy shit and have fun. Like I love the mentality, but they would just, there was like literally their standard, like regime that used with most everyone. I think it was literally something like starting 10 weeks out, they do sets of 10, you know, like three sets of mm-hmm. 10, like DeLorme type, you know, three sets of 10 types of things with some assistance work. This isn't the whole program, but, and All then right. like three weeks of that, they go to like sets of five. And then they start doing triples for the next three weeks. And then they'd have like a week, week off where they'd taper and then they'd have the meet. And mm-hmm. so they, so they, you know, of course they train during the off season, but you know, they're trying to like, you know, put on some size, you know, from that first period, you're not going to gain a lot, obviously in just three weeks, but some of that was sort of, you know, bodybuilding oriented, put on that size and then they would bring things down to where they're, they're not trying to do like, you know, singles, doubles and triples for months on end but they want to get that neural adaptation that comes with the heavy training, the closer you get to the meat, which is specific to what powerlifting is all about. Mm. So, yeah, so that's, that's super important. So they would, you know, the off season would be about putting on size and getting stronger in general and handling some heavy loads. But that was like a standard regime that they use with great success. Obviously things are much more complicated. I, I can't even like my knowledge of powerlifting is zilch really in the grand scheme of things, but, 
that was it was interesting to see some really high level, pretty high level performing powerlifters um, training in a very simplistic, like it's not rocket science type thing, you know. So you don't gotta like, you know, you don't gotta like with fortitude training. I've basically got a very simple periodization scheme, and it's it's auto regulate. Just use your common sense as much as anything. How long should I like try to progressively overload for until you feel like you should stop? You know. Mm-hmm. Pay attention, auto-regulate, then do a taper, and then start again, and keep doing that, you know. And uh, that's kind of what they, they they did there. They didn't try to like you know create you know macro and meso and micro cycles, you know, with overlapping this, that, and the other. There can be something to say for that when someone realizes that that's what they need to do, because they've they've sort of uncovered the nuances of what works for them. But generally speaking, many people, it's just about like we said before, having fun training really fucking hard because you enjoy doing that and then making sure you recover and eat so you can go in and that's that other side. I guess I'll bring us around to that. That notion I kind of hinted at is that people think of progressive overload as just going in the gym and then driving the adaptation by using more weight and or doing more reps for your sets, at least your working sets. But the other side of progressive overload is that if after you've applied that stimulus, the adaptation you're seeking has occurred. You, the next time you go in the gym, that should be something you're capable of. So those two things have to happen in unison. Yeah, um, self-fulfilling. Right. It's self-perpetuating, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, That's, mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's such a funny paradox. So, yeah, you don't force yourself to go in and lift more weight. You go in and lift more weight because of the training that you've already done. And it's, it's right. adaptation you, and, it, and progressive overload in its nature, right? That's, right. But you continue, like, you, if you just went in and, like, lifted the same weight, eventually you'd, be get, you'd get easier and easier. Mm-hmm. So you have to continue to train as hard as you can and the progressive overload becomes possible only because you've adapted based on the stimulus that was provided previously. Right. The recovery that happened thereafter. So you have to keep on pushing, you know, to keep the ball moving in the right direction. But the momentum comes between the training sessions with the recovery. So. Yeah. And there are yeah. so many different tangents I could go on, but uh, I want to be kind of respectful of your time. I do want to get to that third point if you have time. Oh, um, yeah, sure. Because. <laughs> I, I knew this is how this was going to go, Scott. It's, it's awesome. Um, yeah. Love hearing all this information. Yeah, it's great. It's all amazing stuff that I think, you know, guys that are either familiar or even unfamiliar with yourself and, and your knowledge, like, are going to learn a ton from this. So, yeah, we, we spoke about the tension. We spoke about the metabolic stress. Um, and then you were alluding to a third yeah. So the, the other, the other is that, and, and again, this is the one there you can, um, it's, it's sort of like a, almost a chicken in the egg type of thing. And you'll know what I mean once I kind of get, dive into it, but the other is muscle damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's what we, we kind of know there is that generally speaking, you see, um, one of the things that happens like with the remodeling process is that you've got after resistance exercise stress, you've got an increase in protein synthesis and an increase in protein breakdown. If it's a very, very novel one, of course, you have, you have sort of an immediate insult, a primary insult that comes from the tension. And then that can, especially if you have them in training, you'll get really, really sore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that creates inflammation. So the initial injury creates the, the soreness and the damage thereafter because the proteolysis will occur. And 
what is seems to be the most uh, the type of contraction that produces that to the greatest extent are eccentric contractions, negative contractions. So the lowering of the weight, more so than lifting the weight, causes that. So in, in studies where they're really trying to look at various aspects of muscle injury, muscle damage, and muscle soreness, like things like what's the time course of that, um, variability amongst individuals, the effect of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or using cold or compression, those sorts of things, massage, um, they will typically just do pretty brutal uh, types of stimuli. So they'll take like a one rep max, which you can lower for multiple reps and have people do like eight sets of eight or 10 reps with that and mm -hmm. maybe not even have to lower the load over the course of the entire bout. You've got, um, you're very, in terms of force being produced, it's very energetically inexpensive to do eccentric contractions compared to concentric. Hi guys, I just wanted to jump in here to tell you that if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to become a better athlete, then you can go ahead and visit rugby-muscle.com and pick up any of our free goodies. That is uh, the 50 free rugby conditioning sessions, the physique nutrition crash course video series, the supplement guide, and newly added is a macro calculator. Yes, that's right, a macro calculator where you will be able to work out your protein, carbs, fat, and calories that you should be eating on a daily basis to give you a guide as to where to start your diet from. This will help in conjunction with your 50 free conditioning sessions to build you out a decent little plan that will enable you to take control of your training and use effective training and nutrition to become a better athlete. All that stuff and more can be found at rugby-muscle.com or rugby-muscle.com forward slash macros for the macro breakdown. So when you're lifting, most of the metabolic fatigue comes from the lifting, not the lowering. And when you see people, for the most part, unless they've kind of given up or they've hurt themselves something, you come to the end of a set, you don't typically see people also just give out on the eccentric. If you do, you're thinking, oh shit, they hurt themselves. It's usually when you're pushing up that you start to see the fatigue really ensue and they just can't finish a concentric part of a rep. So if you look at studies just generally across the literature that have compared concentric only versus eccentric only contractions, you see a slight advantage with the eccentric only compared to concentric only. So mm -hmm. something about that, that eccentric seems to be um, important for muscle growth. And one of the things we know, this kind of all ties in with the, with the tension aspect. And this, is why it's, this is why it's funny, because eccentrics are, produce more tension relative to the amount of muscle that's, that's being used. That's why you could produce, you can lower a heavier load that you can lift yeah. because the muscle is simply stronger. But concentrics are what produce that metabolic stress, which then would change the activation pattern and bring more fibers into play. So the eccentrics produce more tension which is probably why one of the reasons why they produce more damage because you're just simply asking those fibers to produce more tension that causes greater disruption in the contractile elements of the, the fibers. Um, there's some interesting things I was just reading, like there's a, a really big uh, um, protein in skeletal muscle called Titan, appropriate name, yeah. that is a structural protein. And it probably it has some other proteins that it articulates with that sort of act as sort of an unscrewing type of mechanism. So it's sort of like a, they rotate around one another during the course of an eccentric contraction. There's sort of a spring-like um, function there as well. And that's probably what explains the fact that you can 
you can get away with literally lowering a one rep max load multiple times without hardly any fatigue because you've got that elastic component that is doing the um, producing the force as opposed to the actin and myosin using up ATP and producing force through cross bridge cycling. Uh-huh. So, but in doing that, you suffer the consequences of a good amount of amount of uh, soreness, muscle damage, and soreness and inflammation. Yeah. So you get that. We see it a lot in um, our players when, like, they've been in, a, they've had a, their first game. I think it's. Uh, does it? What does that be the same for isometric contractions too? You or similar? You, yeah. You, you can when something's novel. Um, yeah. You can get you can get soreness, you know, pretty readily. But if you compare concentric only versus isometric, the best way you can possibly compare them, they're all they are different in terms of energy demand. And mm-hmm. like for instance, you're technically not doing any work if you're doing an isometric contraction, so it's kind of hard to do that. Compare that, the energy turnover is different during isometric versus concentric versus eccentric. So it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to compare. But concentrics won't produce nearly the must the damage and the soreness that eccentrics will. And isometrics probably not either that doesn't get studied all that much but if you're coming off of a layoff or not having done anything for a while then you can definitely get sore yeah and like you're talking about like being in a scrum like literally you're pushing up yeah, against the yeah really hard. I, you see it a lot in rock but then it's also where we, we also see that when we do sprint training or, or training with the sled um, we actually i've got a good horrible actually but training session where it's just pushing a sled for 20 to 30 minutes or dragging a sled for 20 to 30 right. minutes. And cause it's all eccentric, like it's, yeah, it all causes concentric. a lot of, I mean, sorry. Yeah. All concentric. Right. It's, it, it, it creates an incredible amount of sweat and it like feels like it's really difficult, but because it's, um, it's called high intensity continuous training. So because you, the muscles relax in between, you know, for a second or so as you're stepping from each leg, it allows the, you know, it allows that tension to, to get off. And then uh, it causes very little damage the next day, which guys are always yeah. shocked by because they're like, oh, this is novel. This is tough. And how, like, how does that make sense? I'm not sore, but, you know, you've sort of laid out exactly why. Right, yeah. So, oh. um, yeah, and, the, and you know, there, there's a lot of, um, I just talked about this on what, my own podcast. It's a whole other topic, but there's, Several places where there are single nucleotide polymorphisms, so specific genes that we like to try to do this with genes too, is like find a specific gene that's predictive of performance or something mm-hmm. like that. There's, there's a few genes, um, uh, ACTN3, um, actinomycin is a, a structural protein, the Z-line that's involved, and um, uh, IL-6, interleukin-6, for instance, is involved. That's involved with inflammation. Um, IGF two is involved with recovery and growth. Like gene variants in those genes will dictate um, how much how sore how much a sore someone will get. Basically, how much damage they'll have. It's highly variable. It's all over the place. There's a lot mm. of this stuff when I was in grad school too. But but yeah, you're, what you're seeing it totally makes sense. The concentrics you can get away with, um, whereas the eccentrics no. Like like one of the things like another good example people can kind of stick in their head is. Um, people like to do the, they have a Pikes Peak Marathon um, in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, you get, you can be ready to run a marathon, but what people sometimes just can't do because they don't have a place with hills or they just don't think ahead. And, and this has resulted in some pretty, been some, some rap, cases of rhabdo that were life-threatening is you have to you run up 
Pikes Peak, right. but then you have to come back down. Yeah. And it's easy coming down because energetically it's no, it's a breeze. So your, your heart, everything's cardiovascularly. It's, you know, not a problem getting up is the hard part. You just kind of like skip your way down. But people who haven't done a lot of that, like the downhill part is what just will create massive damage and rhabdomyolysis and potential renal failure. That's what mm -hmm. really gets people. So you're very smart to have do that, um, that sled maneuver with people when they're first starting off because that's a great way to ease them in to, mm -hmm. uh, to being getting conditioned. Yeah. For so, sure. but as far as the muscle growth goes, so there's that, there's that connection there that, um, eccentric contractions produce more tension. We know tensions involved with muscle growth and they also produce more damage kind of tie those things together. It suggests, you know, that damage is somehow important. And if you, if you, there is, if you look at what's going on in muscle fibers, when they get larger, you're getting more actin and myosin, getting more myofibrils, which are, um, Sort of like I, I always liken it to imagine if you had like a, a cylindrical can that was full of uh, uncooked spaghetti. And that can is a fiber, muscle fiber, a myofiber. And if you pulled one of those strands of spaghetti out, that would be a myofibril. And if you looked in that myofibril, you see, oh, there's the actin and myosin in there. And I, if I look down the, the length of the spaghetti strand, I see these little like lines that they're called Z lines or in German, Zwischenlinie that are in between each of the sarcomeres. Those sarcomeres are in series up and down the length of one of those spaghetti strands. So when the fibers get bigger, you get more pieces of spaghetti and the can gets bigger to accommodate those, those pieces of spaghetti. Um, so generally the spacing doesn't change much. There's been a, most of the time they haven't found that unless, unless there's major damage and swelling inside the fiber, but you're gaining more of those. So, that's a pretty decent ultrastructural remodeling of the fiber. So, and sometimes those myofibrils will actually split and probably become two. So they've demonstrated that a little bit here and there. And actually you see fiber splitting too, which is one potential way of hyperplasia. But so you've got, the idea is that you've got to have some breakdown, some proteolysis and some damage, so to speak, to evoke that remodeling but you can do concentric only contractions and get great um, uh, growth without tremendous muscle damage. In fact, there's a really cool study. I think it was a flan F L A N N that came out a few years ago. And they took, um, I think that Lily in the title of the study is like no pain, no gain. And they took a, a group, one of the groups, the sort of the experimental group was they just start off very, very slow with very little volume and uh, evoke what's called a repeated bout effect. There's a protective effect of having done one, one exercise bout. If it's really, really damaging, you bring this about, but you don't have to like, just decimate someone to get this a protective effect, which means that the next time they come back and do that same exercise bout, there's not nearly the soreness or the injury. So something mm -hmm. changes. There's various you know, models and thoughts as to why that's the case, but so they eased them in like the first three weeks and they, they measured creatine phosphokinase levels, an enzyme that would leak out of the skeletal muscle when it's been damaged. And they never got really above kind of a critical pathological level in the experimental group where they eased them into training. And the other group, um, they just blasted right off and just, just you know, start them off with the full-fledged training bout and their CPK levels were high. I think almost the entire like eight or 12 weeks. I can't remember exactly how long it was. And um, 
so that group basically, according to the CPK, they had damage that literally kind of persisted the entire time, actually. It never really saw a great protective effect. It came down eventually, but they suffered initially. And what they did is they started slow with the volume and they increased the volume so that it was really probably undiscernible to the experimental group. But the volume of training they did over the course of the whole training was the same. The only thing they did different was they eased them in initially and prevented that damage that, that um, the other group uh, experienced. And when you looked at the strength gains, I literally think it was like 23.3 and 23.6% increase in strength in one of the major exercises that they used. So literally the adaptations that they found in muscle and strength were identical, but mm -hmm. they just avoided all that damage. So it can be kind of a old school, you know, coaches type thing, like, you know, get in there and, you know, you, you come to camp ready, you know, and have already been trained enough or you're going to get killed, you know, and we're going to make you pay for being lazy in the off season, which, you know, probably has like, you don't want, you, it's probably a good, uh, a good way to keep people from, from not doing what they should in the off season to come ready for the season. But um, you don't have to do that. So for personal trainers, for instance, or maybe, you know, if you do have some guys that for whatever reason, you know, they just, when they first time you see them, um, you know, you got to go light on them. What you're doing is super smart and you can gradually add in some of that eccentric, slightly damaging exercise or more damaged exercise, but not enough that just destroys them and evoke that protective effect in a way that they never really get incredible muscle soreness. And you're not going to like, it's like you're going to miss out on the muscle growth um, and that you have to have muscle soreness and muscle injury to produce growth. So like, that's a really kind of important piece of information. Yeah. And that's like from a purely strength slash hypertrophy sort of standpoint where it's like you're we're, we're saying that tension and, and muscle damage is one of our things that we're looking for in terms of trying to grow yet we can if we do it smartly then we can really just get the same amount of growth and potentially even more because when you know we're not constantly dealing with that soreness uh so we can probably train harder and uh, get more effect from that as well yeah, I, I, maybe you can, in the show notes, you can link um, the podcast because this is something that I went into that kind of all blend together in the last yeah, two or three podcasts. But, um, so there's the way, the way I sort of conceptualize, and I think this would probably be helpful. It would help, help me explain a good bit of what I see and read in the research is that the adaptation to resistance exercise is a, is, is, is that it's, it follows the, the law of hormesis. It's a hormetic type of stimulus. So you've got an increase. For, as you increase the stimulus, this would be number of sets, let's say, or the load that you're using, you know, training with um, number of reps reserve, whatever, how hard you train, just generically speaking. As you train harder and harder, let's say you just add sets. Let's say you train to failure each of your sets. So you're comparing like one, two, three, four, all the way up to, six, 10, eight sets in a week to failure, you're going to get an increased adaptation as the stimulus goes up. And at some point, all the things being equal, you have sort of an optimal level of adaptation. And then if you go beyond that, well, then you end up doing too much and you're not able to fully recover from the stimulus that was provided. And then you start to have a less than optimal adaptation. If you keep doing, trying to do more and more and more, eventually you get to where you're having little to no adaptation, if you go beyond that, then you're going to actually have a, 
uh, a true overtraining phenomenon where you're actually backsliding in terms of performance or from a bodybuilder's perspective, muscle mass. So people will say, like, I got asked the question on Instagram. I get questions like this, and, um, and I understand them because the way a lot of research is couched is that, you know, we compared, you know, drop sets versus straight sets. And, you know, in a given regime, let's say it's, you know, 10 sets a week, drops, 10 sets of drop sets versus um, X number of straight sets to match the volume. Some people will find that the drop sets for them are a greater stimulus and thus a greater adaptation because Mm -hmm. they can recover from that. Whereas other people might find that the straight sets being, let's say it's a lesser stimulus for them, give more optimal adaptation because the drop sets are simply too much for them. Mm-hmm. And that's beyond their level of optimal adaptation. So now they're doing too much. So if you did the same study and compared 10 drop sets versus the equivalent amount of straight sets, and then did another study where you compared three sets, drop, three drop sets or four sets, let's say, two, two workouts with two drop sets, you know, that are really, really difficult. Um, you could find potentially different results. Imagine you compared 20 sets. Um, you're going to get different results but for, and for different individuals yeah. because some people's recovery abilities are going to vary. And I've talked about this one ad nauseum, but it bears repeating is really cool study was done and they compared five, two, five, three, and, and two times a week training. Each session was three sets just for the knee extensors. And when they looked at comparing all those groups, they didn't find any effect of training frequency, which also meant training volume. So it's 15 versus uh, nine versus six sets. No difference. Like on average, all the groups grew the same. About a year and a half later, they, they went and published using the same data, the same individuals, same subject, the same study, and they looked at individual responses. The cool thing about this is they were using a one a unilateral training regime. So one leg would be trained, let's say, five times a week in the same person, and the other leg would be three times a week or two times a week. So they had some people who grew better um, with the five times a week than the two or three times a week. And some people who grew better, grew better from the two or three times a week compared to the five times a week. Some people grew really, really well, and some people didn't grow very well at all. So the, the, the ability to recover, this is the same individual, the same diet, everything else is exactly the same. This training stimulus is really the only thing that differed. That's why this is such a beautiful thing. You're not comparing like John and George. You're comparing John and John. Mm-hmm. Comparing one leg getting five times a week, the other leg getting two times a week. John might grow better with five times a week than two times a week in this particular regime, three times, three, three sets per, per exercise three sets per training session, 15 a week. Whereas George might do better with the lower volume versus the higher volume. So individuals are going to differ in terms of how that curve increasing the stimulus to a point of optimal adaptation varies. And, and you know, what, 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 how many, what the volume is or what the effort levels are that give that optimal stimulation. So that's, that's super important. I think for, figuring out how to make, how to make muscle grow. It's figuring out what your own recovery abilities are. Yeah. It's so like, it's so individual and, uh, it's yeah. annoying because I thought you were going to come on this podcast and tell me exactly how many sets 
and what rep range are all supposed to do? <laughs> well, here's the thing. The important point, I don't want to miss this, is that I think muscle soreness to some degree, it's not the end-all be-all. You can still grow if you're sore because mm-hmm. um, I, I did it for years. But if you're constantly sore, you come into the gym and you're like, oh, shit, like just stretching the muscle feels like, like wow, that really hurts. Um, that, that would tell you that you still got an active inflammatory process. You still probably got some muscle breakdown that's going on at a pretty high level, and you may not have recovered. Mm-hmm. So for someone, and I, I'm learning this lesson just now, is like less can be more in terms of adaptation. So you want to do as much as it feels great to know, like, you know, I did a hundred sets, you know, and, and cause I put everything into it and like, that was, you know, what it took, but sometimes doing less is better. That's why in fortitude training, I have the three volume tiers for that very reason. Mm-hmm. So, but the point of, of that is soreness, which comes from the eccentric training. It's kind of a catch 22 and I'll, I'll tie this, some of this together is that, so the eccentric training and, and the force that comes there seems to be important for growth. You know, if you had to choose just eccentrics versus just concentrics, at least on average, most people would probably do better with just the eccentrics, but you really don't have an option to train that way. But we know that, so the eccentrics are important for growth. There's a, a nice study that was done. Um, this is by some of the people at NASA. My, my uh, mentors involved this one too, and they compared concentric versus concentric eccentric. So, X number of sets for X number of reps, concentric only, no lowering, and then the same regime with the lowering, and you get better growth with the lowering. And even if you try to double the volume, only lifting, no lowering, you still don't get the same growth if you mm-hmm. lift and lower. So you want to lower. But lowering makes you sore. So, <laughs> and too much soreness is too much soreness. It's not going to recover. Right. And the, per, the people who have an advantage and Brandon Curry, literally reigning Mr. Olympia for those rugby players who might not know, um, talked about training the Middle East where they just brutalize people. He, go, he went over there and that's probably one of the main things that's brought him to where he is now is the best in the world. And one of the things he said is like, he'll see people, guys, bodybuilders, really high level bodybuilders that come in there and some of them don't make it. And the thing that, that basically happens is they just can't keep up with the volume of training. And probably these are the guys who just don't have the recovery level. So the mm-hmm. more you can train and recover from the greater stimulus you'll have. But that doesn't mean that training more is the ideal way to go about it. Cause if you don't recover, then, then it doesn't matter. You're going to do too much. So there's some genetics and some of this can be modified of course, with how well you rest and, um, you know, how well you recover, the other things you do in your life, you know, the amount of food you're eating, those sorts of things. But to some degree, you can only train so much and recover from it. And genetics will dictate that to some, to some, some point. So you can't pick up muscle and fitness or they don't have these anymore. But in the day you pick up Flex Magazine and you read like, you know, Ronnie Coleman trains, you know, 20 yeah. sets of body part twice a week. It's like, well, Ronnie Coleman's from another planet. You can't do that. You could never recover from that. Mm-hmm. It's not applicable to you. So that soreness is kind of a really kind of real world indicator, constantly sore. Um, that tells you you probably might be doing too much. Think about bringing it down. And if you do that and you come back and you start getting stronger, um, even though you might balk like, ah, I want to do more because I, I think more is better. But if your rate of strength gain goes up, chances are you're going to be growing better because that, that's that side of progressive overload. That's the side of the coin we don't pay attention to that recovery 
is better. And that's what's allowing you to make those better strength gains, performance gains in the gym, which is reflective of the muscle growth. So all the pieces fit together. Just got to be a little bit of a realist and, you know, and sort of look objectively at yourself rather than, gosh, I wish I could train like Brandon Curry. It's like, well, you probably wish you might look like Brandon Curry, but it's yeah. just not going to happen. Yeah. And training yeah. like him might not be the way to do it. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. I mean, look, look, imagine if Dorian tried to train that way mm-hmm. during, during eights. I mean, he's, he's, he's talked about this, you know, many times. Like, he found that the less he did initially, the better he looked. And he was able – it doesn't mean necessarily that you can't – that you're going to be de facto smaller – it's just a matter of optimizing the stimulus for the recovery. So he ended up training really, 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 really hard um, with the amount of volume he could recover from. And obviously, he had some good genetics there too. But it, it's not like the, like the death knoll on becoming a big guy if you, can't, if you don't have tremendous recovery abilities. It's definitely an advantage, I think, because the better you can recover, the more stimulus you can apply and then recover from. But – it's not, it's not everything. So don't, don't give up, you know, just if you're sore all the time. Yeah. And I think it's, it goes back to what you just said there as well about like, if you are getting stronger, then you're probably getting bigger. Like you're, you're, and, and if you're getting stronger and your goal is to get stronger and especially like as rugby players that are trying to, you know, as we said, muscle size is a general part of this whole thing. Like if you're getting stronger, that's enough. Like it, it's funny. I answered a question literally today on that aspect where a guy wrote in and he said, Oh, um, can you help me? Because I'm, I'm always getting sore from my training. Uh, what are some recovery supplements and nutrition things that I can pay attention or that I can use? And I was like, well, first thing is like, how much are you training? Like, (laughs) you know, if you're training too much and you're not getting stronger, then, then it doesn't matter what you do to recover. Like maybe just look at using less of the, uh, you know, lowering your training volume and ensure that you are getting stronger and not be because we get guys that you know they train fairly hard but if they train a little bit of a low volume but they're still getting stronger they still just get worried they're like uh i don't think i'm doing enough and then that comes back down to a whole different rabbit hole of goal setting and actually having direction with your training which Mm -hmm. uh, i mean we could could record for another two hours talking about that (laughs) one i mean maybe a last last thought on that is imagine like if you, if you do believe that getting stronger, assuming you're eating enough and recovering appropriately, is going to mean getting bigger, then think about what would you do to try to become the strongest guy in the gym or to get as strong as you possibly can over the next year? Would you try to do 20 sets? We're talking about strength in like the, you know, the hypertrophy rep range, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something six, six to ten eight to 12 reps, something like that. And I'm talking about trying to train for powerlifting, you know, although yeah. that's not a bad way that works for lots of people. Um, but imagine what you do. You wouldn't go and just decimate yourself with 20 sets twice a week. Mm-hmm. You, would, you would train and make sure you're optimally recovered so that you could come in and know that you're going to beat your performance previously because you're not overly sore. Like everything feels fresh. You're ready to just like eat the weights after you're done lifting them. And yeah. you do that repeatedly, that's how you get to be a really brutally strong person. And that's how you can get brutally big as well. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it sort of all that, 
ties everything in together beautifully. You know, it's it's about you know recovering, putting in that work, but then recovering enough so that you can put in more work and then consistently do that. And rather than arbitrarily looking at you know sets and reps or volumes or whatever it is of other people, it's it is really about figuring figuring out what. And that's kind of the beauty of hypertrophy, right? Is that there are so many different things and so many different mechanisms by which we can sort of cause hypertrophy that you can make it fit and you kind of have to make it fit whichever way is most suitable for you. And as we alluded to at the beginning, your personality type. Yeah. I think that, you know, form follows function is one thing. And I, and I even mentioned this to, to Brad Schoenfeld when he was on a, on a podcast that I, that used to, that I was on, I was one of the hosts of is I haven't seen this, but I'm waiting like, and he's done some of this work and maybe I can coerce him into uh, to digging up the data and trying to reanalyze it. But, even with those, those high rep sets, which some people might prefer because you get a great pump from those, I would love to see uh, someone go back and look at the data and say, oh, in those groups where they, they produce muscle growth with the low, low load, high rep training, did the individuals who had the greatest increase in performance, let's say the loads they used for those 20 or 30 rep sets, did those grow the most? Those individuals get the most muscle growth. Mm. Was the correlation between performance changes and muscle size changes because I've seen it with the one rep max strength, even though people weren't training that way, but I like to, I want to see that this is what bodybuilders are doing. We're looking at the logbook and looking at the logbook performance changes. And, and that is associated pretty strongly with the muscle growth. We know this, like I've just seen it like for just far too long. Um, there's too many examples of this being the case, mm-hmm. but, the, but that's something that it's like, it's right there. Like these guys are meticulously making sure that progressive overload occurs Increasing the load, you see, it's in the it's in the methodology, but they're not making use of that data. It's right there. It's like, okay, so are we seeing that, like this very basic idea that form would follow function, that the body is operating, it's adapting specifically to the loads that are being applied to it by increasing muscle mass. If that's our sort of our underlying premise that we're using load based resistance training to produce better increases in muscle size. Shouldn't we see universally every single time that regardless of whether it's high rep or low rep, high rep or high load, low load, that the performance changes um, are the things that seem to be driving the growth, the muscle growth, because we see strong correlations between performance improvements and muscle size changes. So, yeah, hopefully that'd be- that- yeah, that'd be representative of, of the growth as well. It should be, do, should yeah. be, but it's just, you just don't see it. Like, it should be like, you know, and we found like that this happened. Like, it should be just like, you know, obviously, like as has been documented and then cite, you know, a thousand studies previous, this was the yeah. case, but it's just one thing you don't see, you don't see, um, you don't see there. So um, hopefully that'll, you know, make its way into more, more studies. Yeah, I mean, uh- and then that's kind of the the issue, right? It's just that there's so many different ways that to sort of uh, govern or to dictate muscle growth that it's very difficult to sort of monitor all of those in a single study because you're always just trying to look at one variable and um, you, you just look at whatever, like you just look at the um, the reps and the loads. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. you know just yeah look at like what what was the first. Like during each exercise, like what was the weight times the reps, the workload, yeah. you know, at the start and the end, simple as that. How much do they improve? Do the ones who like, you know, increase strength by 40% for those reps get the most versus 20%, you know, it doesn't matter how they train. Like 
but you're but they're progressive overloading in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to. Be, it doesn't have to be rocket science. Like you should see that um, that the growth is associated with performance, regardless of how the training occurs. If it evokes growth, if that underlying notion is actually true, that the growth is is reflective of the stimulus it's brought on or, but maybe, maybe you don't like if the growth is just kind of happening, you know, haphazardly and it's really the nervous system that's, you know, most, most, mostly being trained here. And the growth is just sort of the secondary effect. Um, like a muscular callus is what I've referred to it as. Mm. And you wouldn't see those correlations and that would be, you know, that's also good information. But so I, I can't say, you know, I've always, it always made sense to me just thinking kind of in a Hanselier bastardized, general adaptation syndrome type of way that the performance and the growth should be correlated, but those data aren't, haven't been published. They're there. They're just, they're just like, they're just dangling in front of me as these, these fruit waiting to be analyzed, but I'm not actively doing research. So I can only ask the people that are doing it to, Hey, I wonder if what happened if you took a look at this. Yeah. Get, get back onto them. Cause that, I mean, that would, that would simplify a lot, <laughs> you know, if we were just like, right, Great. this is definitely, and it could even be to a point where that would be, you know, to an extent. So that would be like how you get from beginner to high level intermediate sort to, you know, beginner to low level advanced sort of training is just always get stronger. And then even if there's a other differential from then, then we can look at what, what a different, modalities to train as once you've already once you've hit that point of being strong enough to get uh, quote unquote advanced yeah i mean i know there's like there's a study with um looking at olympic weightlifters quite an old one but um that high, like literally world-class olympic level weightlifters and they can stay in the same weight class and get stronger just a mm-hmm. little bit like which for them means a, a great deal in terms of whether they're in the medals placing or not but that's their intention to stay light and to stay in that in their weight class. Because mm-hmm. if they try to move up one, then they, then they're you know then they've got a whole other deal to play with. So that's that's different than what you know like what a rugby player would be wanting to do in terms of gaining size. So that obviously can happen. So anyway, it, we'll, we'll see. I'll I'll, uh, I'll mention it to Brad. I have reason to be in communication with. So I'll, I'll throw it at him again, and maybe um, maybe he has a grad student or something to go back and look at some of the the data they have. Awesome, and then we can get back on and talk about it. There you go. That'd be cool. yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, right. Be awesome. awesome. Yeah, that was great, um, Scott. I'm going to encourage people that listen to this and like really enjoyed it and and got like some really good knowledge out of it to just type in Scott Stevenson on YouTube and go through hours upon hours of your podcasts because I think that's it seems it seems to be something that I've I'm not the first person or the only person that has has had that urge and has gone down that rabbit hole of all of your knowledge so I would encourage others to do the same it's it's I credit to you you're a massive resource in terms of people that want to really try and do as much as they can that care about gaining muscle um so thank you for thank you for coming on this podcast and helping our guys out too absolutely i'm glad yeah thanks for bringing me on this was this was a good time i'm glad i did it yeah me too um is there anything else that you want to any other information apart from just deep diving deep into that rabbit hole that no, directly specifically you'd want to push people i mean i've got my you know you can f- find my books on my on my website be your own bodybuilding coach is my my brain my big brain dump you can get that mm-hmm. on amazon so you can just type in scott stevenson or be your own bodybuilding coach and that'll come up with worldwide amazon and barnes and noble so awesome. 
yeah, that's the, that's the big, like that's it's like 400 plus pages. So there's a lot in there. You can, you can dive. That's a rabbit hole you can live in for a while if you need to. <laughs> Indeed. Or, or you can do none of that and just think, how can I get stronger? And then call it a day. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. <laughs> it's Pretty a- much. It's interesting. That's so interesting. But thanks for coming on. This has been great. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode of the Robbie Muscle Podcast, then I've got a quick little request and a potential prize giveaway for you if you do said request. All I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and type up a five-star review. Just your general opinions of the podcast would be great feedback, but also helps us reach higher rankings, get more exposure, allow me to attract more guests and devote more time to developing a better all-around podcast experience for you. All you have to do once again is go and give us a five-star review on whatever podcast service you use. Let me know that you've got it. And then every single week, I'll be selecting one review to give away a free prize. That free prize will be either one free month of Team Rugby Muscle. That's our world-class strength condition program app delivered directly to your phone. Or if that doesn't interest you, then we've got one free consultation where I'll, I'll go over your training program, your nutrition, and advise you how to best plan for your goals. Even if none of those things interest you, it's still doing me a solid and helping the podcast grow by going and giving us a five-star review. There's no real excuse. It takes like one minute and that helps the show out exponentially. So I'd really appreciate if you could do that. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you in the next one.